You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. Hunter, thank you for that humbling introduction. If you guys missed it, she said, if we were dependent upon our lead pastor, we would not exist or be here today. So my name is Rick. I'm the lead pastor. It's good to be, it's good to be here. So yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with her, so I think it was an accurate statement. So I am not the hero. You can ask my wife or kids that. My aim and goal as a pastor of this church is to point you guys to the, who the true hero is, which is Jesus Christ. So that is not only my goal, that is the goal of all of our elders and pastors here. And speaking of that, I'm going to have them stand up today. So if you, if you are an elder or pastor at Gospel Community Church, one who's been ordained, please stand up. There, there's a couple in the room and, and one who's not in the room. So if, if you guys could give them a round of applause. Last... Last week was Pastor Appreciation Day. You guys can have a seat. And I'm thankful for these men. Uh, two of the men that serve on our elder team are uh, full-time dads, full-time husbands, <laughs> and also faithfully loving and serving our church family as well. And so I'm grateful for these men and thankful for their faithfulness to Gospel Community Church. So also, before we dive in, one last quick announcement. It's starting this week on Wednesday from 9 to 3. If you're a student and you're looking for a place to study, we're opening up our offices at Gospel Community Church. We, we office just right next door. We got a great space. We have two meeting spaces, so we have one that will be a little bit more quiet if you want a quiet study space, but if you don't mind some interruptions, we have a separate room for that as well. So if you're a student and you're looking for a place to study, it's a great spot. Uh, we'll provide the coffee and snacks for you guys as well. So part of this is that we would love to get to know you guys more 
and interact with you guys more and for you guys to get to know who our staff is. So yeah, if you're a student looking for a place to study, please pop on by anytime from 9 to 3. We will be there. So with that, we're going to keep diving into our series today as you guys just saw the video. And by the way, thanks for the team that put the video together. That was Nathan, that was Taylor Alley, that was Chad Saunders, voiceover, and Becca. And so I'm thankful for all of them to put it together and for their hard work. So turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. As we continue our series titled Grace Upon Grace, simply put, why we call this Grace Upon Grace is we did a series a few years ago called Grace from the Beginning, where we looked at the book of Genesis, and we saw that God is a God who's always existed out, out of grace, or our existence as a human creation has come out of God's grace. God has not changed characters. He's immutable. He stays the same. And what we see is that the Israelites, God's chosen people, don't necessarily get much better throughout the Old Testament. What we see is we see that God remains faithful. We see grace upon grace upon grace. We see, we see this in the New Testament. This is still the same God, a God who's a God of grace upon grace upon grace. As we looked at already, the man who wrote the first five books of the Torah, or, or the first five, five books of our Bible called the Torah, his name is Moses. Moses was a murderer. If you want to know that, uh, that God operates out of grace, the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible murdered a man. And God still says, I have plans for you. You're going to deliver my people. And, and, and in, in essence, we, we've been introduced to Moses. We've got to see who Moses is a little bit. What we're getting to see today is we're getting to see who God is. And specifically that God has a name, as Ian talked about a little bit. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to work through this outline. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? And what do we do? The main point is going to be this. You can't be too confident. Demi Lovato co-wrote a song. Sorry, I got to somewhat open up with that. It's a triple platinum record, over a million downloads. I looked this information up or else I wouldn't know it. Her song is titled, What's Wrong With Being Confident? Or I think it's just called Confidence. She asked that question throughout the song, what's wrong with being confident? And it's a question that we could ask, what's wrong with being confident? But I would say this morning, you can't be too confident. You can't be too confident in work, actions, and life. But hang with me to the end, because I'm not ultimately talking about you and yourself and looking deep within. In fact, that's where our culture starts. I looked up, where do we gain confidence from in our world? And this was a secular response. Very popular one. Here's 14 places you can look if you want to become more of a self-confident person. So where do we gain confidence from? Here's what our culture says. Our culture starts with do. Remember, who is God? What has he done? Who are we and what do we do? Our culture starts with do. That's also called religion, just so you know. When you start with a list of principles, things that you're supposed to do or not do, that's where religion comes from. So here's what this article said. Dress nicely. That's number one. According to that, I probably shouldn't be super confident this morning. Um, number two, act positive. Number three, be kind and generous. Number four, speak slowly. I'm not good at that. Number five, stand tall. Six, increase your competence. Okay. Seven, focus on solutions. Eight, smile. Nine, volunteer. Ten, be grateful. Eleven, exercise. Twelve, empower yourself with knowledge. Thirteen, Clear your desk. That's assuming you even have a job with a desk to clear. Otherwise, I don't know how you'd be confident. 14, get to know yourself more. There you go. All right, you guys are released. <laughs> 14 steps. Go conquer it. That's, that's, can you imagine? Dress nicely. That's such a Westerner thing to say. That's a first world thing to say. Dress nicely. What do you do if you don't have money to buy nice clothes? That's where your confidence should stem from? The list is ridiculous. But it's also ridiculous to continue to tell people, 
be confident. And then the place that we drive them to is here's all the things you can do or not do to be confident. Start with that last do. But what happens when you fail miserably at those do's? There goes your confidence. The other place the world likes to start is with who, who are you? And we have decided to try to know who we are apart from first knowing God. If you look at the Disney movie, Pinocchio, the best place Pinocchio can learn about himself would be from his father who made him Geppetto. The best place that we can learn about who we are and where our confidence should come from should be from our creator, not from ourselves. So with that, we're going to pray as we dive in. Father, help us to be overly confident. (laughs) Help us to realize that we can't be too confident when our confidence is in who you are. It's in what you've done, not in ourselves, not in who we are in and of ourselves, not in what we achieve, accomplish, or fail at. Let our confidence be in Christ. Make us a fearless, fearless church with fearless people that have a confidence that's united in and around the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray today, as much as it would be hard for people to hear, that you would decrease our self-confidence that's not in and of you, God, and increase our confidence in you and in Christ. Minister to us today, speak to us today, challenge, exhort, encourage us all through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter three, you can't be too confident. Read with me. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is also Mount Sinai, as we'll see later. Verse two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Verse three. And Moses said, I I will turn to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Again, we need to start with who God is. We start with what's called theology proper. It's a study and a knowledge and an understanding of who God is. The most important thoughts that we think during the day are the thoughts that we think of God. So let's start with who God is. Again, we don't start with who we are. We start with who God is. That's why John Calvin said it so clearly. He said, wisdom is not simply self-knowledge, but that knowledge, true knowledge of the self comes via the knowledge of God. We start first with the knowledge of our creator to have an understanding of who we are. We don't set out on some self journey to figure out who we are deep within here. We start with who our creator is and what he says and what he's done and who he's made us to be. That's our starting point. That is where we start. Otherwise, we will end up with a list of do's or don'ts or just very confused about who we are with our identity, which will lead to this, a great lack of confidence. So first, as we look at who God is, we see this, that God is holy. God is a holy God. First, we need to understand this, as in verse two, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Who is the angel of the Lord? Most scholars would just agree. The angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ. He was Christ, pre-incarnate of his time that he came in the flesh. And so that's what we're looking, because what, what we're seeing here is the angel of the Lord's not speaking on behalf of God, speaking as God. So we have the angel of the Lord. And then what we have is we have Moses, who is now roughly 80 years old. He's been wandering around Midian as a shepherd. Remember, shepherds were 
I mean, repulsive to the Egyptian people. So Moses leaves Egypt as a fugitive, goes to Midian, and he becomes a shepherd. And that's where he's at. He's about 80 years old, and he's wandering around shepherding sheep. His life has been this. And you, you can only imagine, what did Moses think? Like, is this what my life is? Is this what my life's become? I'm a fugitive, ran away. I talk to sheep. I hang out with sheep. This is just kind of what my life is. And he's walking around, and then God appears to him. Maybe some of you think that. It's like, well, I'm getting older, kind of done my time. Maybe God is done with me. I'm not in my prime. I would say this, and specifically to the elderly congregation at GCC, God is not done with you based upon age. God is not ever giving you permission to hang up your letterman's jacket and say, you can move on now. He needs, I should say he wants, excuse me, he wants us to be engaged in his work, even when we're past our prime so that God gets the glory. And so God appears to him and it's in a bush. So Moses does what any of us would likely do. Uh, we'd probably have one or two responses if we saw a bush burning and it's not consumed, is we would either turn to check it out or we would run. So he turns to check it out. And then God calls to him out of the bush. He goes, Moses, Moses. And he's like, <laughs> he goes, here I am. <clears throat> like he, he doesn't really know what's happening. He just says, here I am. Then God tells him this, the place you're standing is holy. Remove your sandals. Whoa. Some believe that what God is doing here is coming to Moses on terms he would understand. Because in ancient Eastern cultures, what you would do before a king is you would take off your shoes. And so God is, is addressing him in terms he would understand. But more so than that, shepherds walked around in muck and dirt and all sort of stuff like that. And God's like, the place where you're standing in my presence, it's holy. There is no muck, no crud or any of that in my presence. You wouldn't walk into a beautiful house, spotless, all white, covered in mud, and just start chasing through it. You, you, you would go, whoa. And so God, first, we have to understand God is holy. He is a consuming fire. And if you don't start with the holiness of God, when you talk about the love of God and the grace of God, you'll just be like, eh. God is holy. In fact, the seraphim, the angels that sit in God's presence, actually covered their eyes from looking at God's face. God even says that no one will see my face and live. God is holy. He's majestic. You can't stare at the sun, the literal sun, without going blind after some time. And you can't expect to sit inside of the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. It's not because God is evil. It's not because it's like this weird garlic vampire thing or something where God's like, get away from me. It's because you will literally be consumed by what is glorious, pure, perfect, righteous, and holy. So first he starts off by telling Moses that, I'm holy, take your sandals off. For the place you are standing is holy ground. That's where God starts off. Here's, here's our problem, oftentimes. We will do one of two things. We will either have a very transcendent view of God, which means this, God is the man upstairs, which I hate that saying. God is the man upstairs. It's a very deistic view. He's, he's up there, he's far removed, his hands are off. Or it's like that of Islam or Mormonism, to where you can only talk to him in like a certain special way. He, he, he's so above and so transcendent that you can't almost have a relationship with him. Or we take God and only make him imminent. He is only present, which is where mystics come from. It's all about the experience. He's only imminent. And, and we see this. Our culture is confused, right? Not just Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights who creates Jesus how he wants him, but all across the board, you have songs. George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. That's almost all that song says the entire time. The doozy. My sweet Lord, my sweet Lord. That's part of it. 
God's kindness, God's love, God's gracious. But that's just one aspect. In fact, you can't take any of God's attributes and separate them into a box and categorize them. They are, he's holy and completely all of the attributes at one time. It's called the doctrine of simplicity. Alanis Morissette tries to do it too. What if God was one of us? Do you guys know that song? It's another doozy. She says, what if he was just a slob like one of us? How offensive is that? What if he had a name? He does. You should read Exodus 3, Alanis. If I'm even saying her name right, but I think that's it. What we do is we, and one theologian said it best, God created man in, him, in his image, and man's been trying to create God in their image ever since. In other words, we create a God that we like. We create a God that feels safe, that feels warm, that feels fuzzy. Why? Because we selfishly want to live out the way that we want to live our lives. I know I'm going to offend some people this morning. So if you're one of those people, come talk to me afterward. I would love to meet with you. I would love to talk to you. I would love to interact with you. But I would say this, the reason why people fall into the lie that it's okay to murder babies in the womb, the reason why people fall into the lie that you can adopt your own form of sexuality, your own form of marriage, your own biological categories, is because what we have tried to do is we have tried to create a God that we would like, that, that fits our own selfish desires of how we want to live, and we want that God to be okay with the lifestyle that we ultimately have adopted. And God would only be loving if he adopts all the things that I think he should adopt, all the ways that I want to live, instead of letting God define the terms, a good and loving God define the terms. We create the own God that we want. So first, he appears to Moses, and he appears as a holy God. He's a holy God. Men and women, apart from Christ, none of us are holy and none of us will ever obtain holiness by ourselves, period. God is holy. And the only way unholy people come into the presence of a holy God is by God making them holy. And the only way that happens, which we'll fast forward and we see, is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can't obtain holiness. So is your confidence... Right out of the gate, we can ask, is your confidence to even approach God, to come to God, a holy God, in anything that you have or haven't done, anything that you do or cannot do? What we also learn about God from this section is we learn that he is a God who speaks. He's a God who's spoken, like God speaks. Again, I know this is going to be hard for some of you here. I preach through 1 Corinthians 12 from the feedback I've got, have received from that. It's been everyone's least favorite sermon that I've preached on is spiritual gifts, okay? I heard that. Let me say this. I believe that God's word is closed. It's finalized. I don't believe it's a three-ring binder that we can just keep adding stuff to. I believe he's spoken. And I believe that when people make comments like, God told me, or God spoke to me, or God said this, that you start to minimize the kind of experience that happened here with Moses, and then you make those statements authority. And I would simply have to ask, then do we take those comments and place them in the word of God since you said God has spoken? Again, I think there's a difference between God has given me desires. He's, he's, he's put things on my heart. He speaks to me through people. But I believe God's word is sufficient. In fact, I'll quote John Owen because I love this saying. I know it's not the most popular thing, but it says, if private revelations agree with scripture, they are unnecessary. And if they disagree, they are false. So all that to say, I just caution when, when people say, God told me this. Why? I've seen that abused so many times. Hey, uh, excuse, <laughs> excuse me, miss. God told me you're supposed to marry me. Okay, well, I think God's going to need to tell both people that. 
God told me that you guys should give me a million dollars. The abuse that can be used with something like that. I like what Jen Wilkins says. She says it so well. If you want to hear from God, read God's word. And if you want to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud. He's a God who is holy. He's a God who speaks. But look here, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God is a seeing God. He is a hearing God, and he is a God who is moved by his compassion. God is a compassionate God. I don't know what you're going through in life right now. Maybe you're in the worst and painful and horrific season that you've ever been in, but I do know this. God is not blind. God sees and God hears. In fact, if we want to look at the most oppressed people group in all of human history, we can look to the Israelites. I said this in a sermon about 10 years ago. If you want evidence that God exists, <laughs> I mean, you just look to the, to the Hebrew people. But what God says is that I see, I hear, and I'm rolling up my sleeves. It's time. It's time for deliverance. In fact, what we also see about God, that he's holy, that he speaks, that he's compassionate, that he sees, that he hears, is he's a planned provider. He says, look, I'm taking you to a land. It's a broad land. It's got milk and honey. We know that when the Israelites in Joshua 5 cross into the promised land, the manna stops instantly. God was providing through his people through manna. The manna stops. What happens? They start eating the fruit of the land. Do you, you see what God's doing here? There's this massive group of people that's in the promised land. They're planting orchards. They're planting vineyards. They're doing all this work so the people of God can come in and start eating it all. It's like the feast was set for them whenever they got there. God provided for them. They could literally celebrate the Passover feast when they got there because God provided off the work someone else. Does that sound like a story that's familiar to us? Is that we reap all the benefits of someone else's work, namely Jesus Christ. He does all the work, provides everything that we need, and then hands that work to us as though we did it all. We look at that story of the Israelites going to the promised land and go, man, that's not fair. We look at the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ out of all human history and go, that's not fair. That, in, that the only perfectly innocent man dies for rebellious people. In my family, I do not like the F word, the fair word. In fact, my kids have said, this is not fair, and it just really gets me. And I'm like, you want to know what's not fair? An innocent man dying. I've said that before. I'm not saying it's my best parenting moment, but I've said that. <laughs> That's not fair, that an innocent man dies on behalf of other people. We have to see that God is also a plan provider. He's way out ahead of us. So where's, where's our confidence? <laughs> where's our confidence in the, the daily life of what's going on? Is it that God is planned and God's a provider, or is it, man, I got to figure out what to do? Now we come to verse 10. Look at this. We see next that God, who is God? God has a name. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, here's the commission, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, this is a great question, right? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I love God's response. He said, but I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I've sent you. 
when you have brought the people of Egypt, or when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You gotta love this. Moses asked a question that many of us would love to ask, right? So God, God says, hey, he's about 80. Like Moses might've been like, hey, you couldn't have done this when I was like 40 and kind of in my prime. He's 80, he's been hanging out with sheep. Maybe his Arabic is rusty to go back and speak. We don't know all the circumstances, but what we know is this, is God's calling him to do a task that is really, really, really difficult. And so Moses is like, who am I? And what our culture would say is, go take a notebook, a journal, and write down all the awesome things about yourself. Like you're smart, you're strong, you're all of this. And that's not what God does. God goes right back to who God is, but he, he, he says something, something that should give him and us a tremendous amount of confidence. He says, who am I that I would go? And God says, without saying it, wrong question, who am I? I will be with you. Same promise God makes to Joshua, same promise God makes to David, same promise Jesus makes when he says, go forth and make disciples in all the lands, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But know this, I'll be with you. An impossible task. The level of confidence that we have is based upon who goes with us. When we were hunting this year, I asked the guys I was hunting with, I was like, if you had to pick your own Navy SEAL team, you know, like six other guys to go to war with, who would you pick? We went through and we listed off guys and why we would choose these specific people, right? Devin Rogers was on that list. He's at the back of the room. I mean, he was basically an only pick because he provides some sort of medical service. So, <clears throat> but what we did is we chose guys, not even solely based upon their gifting or talents, but even based upon their reliability, their trustworthiness, their character. I tried to instill my kids a confidence that they can trust dad with the things I'm telling them to do so that ultimately I can point them to their ultimate dad and father they can trust and have confidence in. I tried to tell my kids, you can go forth and do this, dad's right here, I'll be right here with you. And ultimately what God says is you can go forth and do this because I'm with you. Psalm 46.1 says, I am your ever present help in time of trouble and need. That's God's promise. That's who God is. He is a present God who is with us. Again, I would have very low confidence if I picked my SEAL team and it was all seven-year-olds, right? Just fumbling with a gun behind me. The level of confidence I have is who is with me? <laughs> Who's going with me? The almighty, the infinite, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the omnipresent God says, I'm with you. That should be enough. In fact, in 12, verse 12, he said this, but I will be with you. I will be is actually the Hebrew, it's ie. So I will be is ie. So pay attention to this because he said, I will be with you. Now, verse 13, then Moses said to God, okay, got that, thank you for that answer. That wasn't my answer to my question. Then Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So now it's EA Asher EA is what it is. And so more the, the literal translation is I will be who I will be. God has a name. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. And if that just frustrates any definition that you can have of God, that's what it's intended to do because you can't put God inside of a nice, tidy, clean box. This is why Jesus says in Revelation 1:8, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He also says in 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is self-defining. 
It's not, my name is Rick, I'm a husband. My name is Rick, I am a father. My name is Rick, I'm this. God is who he is. He will be who he will be. He is the great I am. That is who God is. The problem is, 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 is Moses like, hey, if I go to them and they're like, what's your name? Initially, he says, I will be who I will be. So if Moses goes to the Israelites and says, hey, I want you to know I will be who I will be sent you, then it would be confusing. So God says, say this, let's keep reading on in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. Now it's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which means he, okay? The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He will be who he will be. So go to them and say, hey, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will be who he will be. He's going to save you. He's going to deliver you. So that's what's transpiring here. That's what's taking place. And in fact, maybe this is too nerdy for you guys, but part of what happens is the scribes didn't want to take Yahweh's name. That's If you want to know what is God's name, God has a name. It's, it's his personal name. It's Yahweh. And the scribes didn't want to use that in a way that wouldn't show reverence, respect, or honor. And so they started to swap it out and use the word Adonai instead, which means master or Lord. And then what they ended up doing is any time that that word was going to be used, the word Yahweh, is they added vowels into it. They superimposed vowels so that you would make sure that you never, ever, ever used the name Yahweh without reverence, fear, holiness, and respect. So when we see the word Lord in our Bibles, that is Yahweh. That's what it is. All capital Lord is Yahweh. That's God's personal name. That's who God is. God says, I am. We can understand that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has saved. We can trust this, that he is the great I am, the God who is presently saving. He's the God that will be, the God that will continue to save, past, present, and future. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the King of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This, this is important to note, to, to know and to note, is that Exodus doesn't end with God's deliverance on the other side of the Red Sea. God, uh, the, the book of Exodus doesn't end at Sinai. The book of Exodus ends with the building of a tabernacle. God is not just delivering people so that they can be delivered into just whatever. God is delivering people to be a worshiping people so he can have a relationship with them. God is not just delivering people out of something. God is delivering people to something, a relationship with him. That's who God is. God is holy. He speaks. He's compassionate. He's a plan provider. He has a name, and he is a God who delivers. Yeshua, Jesus' name, means Yahweh saves. Christ means Messiah. Yahweh saves through the Messiah. And, and 
This is who God is, but what has God done? Great, that's who God is, but what has he done? Again, people want to jump to who are we, but let's look at what God has done. God came. That's what he's done. God came. God came in human form. He came in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And in fact, if you doubt that Jesus Christ is the great I am in flesh and blood, Jesus makes it clear by calling himself I am over and over and over again. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He goes on to say, before Abraham was, I am. And all the religious leaders pick up stones because they knew that he was calling himself God. I am the good shepherd. One of my favorites is in John chapter 18, when the band of soldiers that Judas has set up has come to arrest Jesus. There's like three to 600 soldiers. And Jesus goes, who are you looking for? And they go, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am he. All of them fall flat on the ground because he unshrouded just a glimpse, just a, just a sliver of his deity and of his glory, and no one could stand in his presence, letting them know, no one comes and takes my life. I'm laying it down on my own accord. You don't have the power to do this. I have all power. I have all authority. So what, what has God done? God, God has literally come in human flesh to provide the means to rescue us from the greater Pharaoh. The, the greater Pharaoh is our bondage to sin. The greater Pharaoh is Satan. So literally God comes to deliver us, to give us new hearts and new lives. Jesus Christ went where no other man could go. Jesus Christ did what no other man could do. You see, you need someone who's fully God and fully man to step into the courtroom of God. In the same way, Moses was Egyptian and Hebrew, so he could go into the courtroom of Pharaoh. God go, or Jesus goes on behalf of God and pleads with God. Give me their guilt. Give me their shame. Give me their sin. Give them my innocence. He takes what he doesn't deserve and gives us what we don't deserve. God makes his final and ultimate covenant, as Hebrews says, it's a covenant made of blood. Did you know covenant's redundant? God, God can make a promise. He doesn't even need to do that. He gives his word. God will never lie. A covenant's redundant. It's like double down that this is what God is going to do. He will do what he said he's going to do. He is a faithful God. Hebrews 13, 20 says this. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord. What has God done? He's provided the true and greater exodus. You see, the nation of Israel continues in their sin and their idolatry because they just didn't need to be delivered from the Egyptians. They needed a heart delivery. That's what God does. He sends Jesus, God in flesh, to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. Give us a new heart, a new identity. God doesn't just deliver us from sin. You see, when Moses stood in the presence of God, he said, remove your sandals. Jesus isn't just removing dirt, mud, sin, grime, guilt, shame, and all those things. What he's doing is he's adding holiness do you know that in Christ you bear the measure and the full measure and holiness of God himself? God makes you holy, set apart, and a saint by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what God has done. Now, who are we? That's when we answer this question. Who is God? He's all of that. What has he done? He's provided the, the, the ultimate savior, the ultimate Messiah. Who are we? We are now given an identity that is true, one that we don't have to achieve, one that we don't have to earn. We're given the identity as sons and daughters of the living God. You see, you might have had a horrible day yesterday. You might have been a horrible parent, incredibly un, just impatient with your kids. You might have fallen into sin yesterday. You might have had a great day yesterday. 
But here's the thing, your identity in Christ as a son and child of God, that doesn't change and that is the basis of why God loves you. His covenant, his work. And so we can't be too confident, let me go back to the original statement, we can't be too confident in work, life, and actions. Not our work, not our life, not our actions, but the work of Christ, the life of Christ, and the actions of Christ is the sole basis of our confidence and faith and trust that God loves us. You can't be too confident in that. That's why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Also, 1 John 3.1 says this, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Let me ask you this question. Do you have confidence to boldly run into the presence of your father? Or do you go, well, the reason I'm not is because I did this and I, and I did this and I didn't do this. Do you know what you've just said? Your confidence is based upon something you have done or haven't done. Or do you have confidence because you're like, yeah, yeah, I have confidence because I've read my Bible, I prayed and I've done all that stuff, so I have confidence. You have still stated your confidence is not in the work actions in life of Jesus Christ, but in something you've done or haven't done. We have confidence and we can't have too much confidence in that we can run boldly into the presence of God to be loved infinitely every second of every day based upon what his son has done on our behalf and that we're his children. The only people that can kick down the door of my room that can come barging in without knocking, even though I don't like it, are my own kids. We, as children of God, can barge with boldness into his presence, into the presence of a holy God and not be consumed because we come in with his holiness, the holiness that's been, transpu- or, 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 that's been imputed to us, given to us by his son, Jesus Christ. What do we do? Now we get to our do's. You see, if we start with our do and I say, do these 14 things to give yourself self-confidence or don't do these things, then we go out on a religious effort. Here's what I'm doing. I'm dressing nice. I'm cleaning up my desk. I'm, I'm doing these. I'm smiling. I'm volunteering. I'm doing all these things. And when we fail to do those things because we get in an accident or we can't do those things and we can't become intellectually smarter, our confidence doesn't have to be robbed. Who we are can't change. Who is with us will remain with us. And what he's done belongs to us. So what do we do? Christians should be the most confident people on the face of the earth. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you don't have a shy personality or more of a gregarious personality or something like that. That's looking at, pos- that's looking at personalities. What I'm saying is based upon what Christ has done and who we are in him, we should be fearless because nothing can separate you from the love and the approval of God. Like you can be a radical risk taker. When you look at what God calls you to and it's uncomfortable or it's hard or it's difficult, do this despise your strengths, loathe them, and applaud your weaknesses because God will work through your weaknesses and he will get the glory. What we need to do as Christians is not go, oh man, I just don't know enough to disciple or if I could do this or this person's really hard for me. What we need to do is go, I don't know about all my strengths. If anything, I'm gonna doubt those because those make me self-reliant. But I do know this, these are my weaknesses. Man, I'm uncomfortable, this is hard, but I know who's with me. I know that his spirit has literally placed inside of, been placed inside of me to empower me. We should loathe and despise our strengths and applaud our weaknesses because those make us dependent and confident in God. This is the work that God was doing with Moses. 80 years old? Come on, 80. Go, <laughs> release, deliver my people. You're a shepherd. That'll also make you hated. Go. Where was he calling him to look? Not to yourself, Moses, to me. Maybe you're in a position in life where God's calling you to do something. He's giving you desires. 
You can do those things with the confidence of knowing you will never be defined by your success or failures in life, but only by what Christ has done. The other thing is, ladies, let me say this. What can we do? We can be confident in stepping into something like the women's retreat, where you're on the fence, you're like, I don't know, I don't know. We can be confident in that because ultimately God is with us. We are a son or a daughter, in your case, a daughter, and you can step into difficult situations like this. We can step into community with confidence. We can take risk. We can lean in. We can move forward. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in us. Last, I would say this. Here's what we need to do. We need to remember that every week at Gospel Community Church, we have a visual reminder that engages our senses. I'll call the worship team up now. What we have is communion, an act, a meal. <laughs> we have a meal that we eat together every week that's an act of remembrance. Do you know what the meal says? You can't be too confident in my broken body and in my shed blood for you. You can walk boldly to the table to receive what Christ has done for you. You can walk boldly out of here because of what Christ has done for you and because of who he's made you. The new covenant is made by the blood of Christ. Every week you take it, it's just a constant reminder that God says, I'm never going anywhere and I'm never gonna stop loving and pursuing you. Let that be your confidence, amen?